We're reading this morning from Acts 17, verse 16 to 34, if you want to turn with me. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, morning. Um, I've got a sore throat. Does anybody have any strepsils around? That's a real request. If you do, just pass them up because I might need them. I do need them and I forgot to bring some. Um, but as I was sitting there, I decided that, Ashley, thank you so much. As I was sitting there, I decided that if my throat got to the point that I couldn't talk, that was probably God saying that it was time for me to get off the stage. So we'll grow with that. Um, this was a bad idea. <laughs> Did not think that through. Bear with me. We'll dress up in the recording, don't worry. Um, also, no, you know what, I can't do it. Okay. Excuse me. <laughs> Can we come back tomorrow and we'll start again? Uh, so, if you don't know me, I'm a disgusting animal called Andrew, um, who spits sweets out in public. Um, I'm one of the leaders here at Village. Um, this morning, we're, we're back into our series in Acts. We're up to Acts chapter 17, the second half of that. We find ourselves, Paul's kind of halfway through um, two out of three big missionary trips that he took. He takes three kind of main missionary journeys, and this is the second one. And he's been in Thessalonica, which is kind of uh, way up north of Greece. And then he's uh, had to leave there because people want to kill him. And so he comes all the way down to Athens, which is towards the south of Greece. And that's kind of where we, we find him this morning. He's waiting for his friends uh, Silas and Timothy to come to him. Paul, Paul doesn't like being alone, right? He hates, he hates being on these journeys alone. And you can imagine why, because... Um, Firstly, he's alone in foreign cities. And then secondly, people are trying to kill him all the time. And thirdly, it's a huge responsibility, planting churches and raising up leaders and, and evangelizing and all that on your own. So he's, he's desperate for, Paul, or for Silas and Timothy to come and meet him. 
Um, so here we find him in Athens. But before we begin, we have to kind of think about what Athens was like this time um, and the reasons why will become clear as we go on. So Athens uh, was this center of commerce. It was this big center of culture and politics. It was a center of philosophy. It was one of the jewels in the crown of the Roman Empire. It was a Greek city. So it in itself was a, a Greek city-state many, 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 many years ago. And then the Romans came and it was absorbed into the Roman Empire. So now it's this, this powerful city. Um, it was really a city. I don't, has anyone ever been to Athens? Yeah, like some people. Yeah, I mean, Beth has. And she'll tell you, like even now, thousands of, 2,000 years after this, it's impressive. So it was built to impress, it was built to, to stir the sense, it was built to capture the emotions. It had temples everywhere, had idols everywhere, it had art everywhere, statues and paintings. It had, um, you, it had like uh, culture and food and all the things you might expect of a, of a, of a kind of metropolitan cultural center today, only 2,000 years ago, and with a lot more obvious idolatry. Um, it was said, there was a historian around the time, and he said, that in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. This was the level of kind of idolatry that was going on. They had gods for absolutely everything, and, and this is what was happening. Um, in this time as well, um, Greek cities, they would have a temple on the highest point in the city, usually dedicated to the god or goddess that was the patron of that city. So, um, and, the, and they called these Acropolis, Acropoli. So the Acropolis in Athens was dedicated to the goddess Athena, which is where the name of the city comes from, Athena, Athens. And uh, if you've ever seen pictures or you've been to Athens, then you'll know that the, the Acropolis is still there, the hill is still there, and the temple, the ruins of the temple are still there, the Parthenon. And inside the Parthenon, this big massive temple, was a huge statue of the goddess Athena. But she wasn't the only god of the city. There were tons of them. There were, as I said, there were idols absolutely everywhere. So this is the kind of setting that we see Paul in today. He's in Athens. He's vulnerable because he's on his own. He doesn't have accountability. It's not like he can text someone or call someone or email someone. He's on his own until many, many days later these guys arrive here. He's vulnerable. He's susceptible to temptation. And here he is in a center of the world that in many ways the center of the, 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 the political and cultural and philosophical world um, and he's here on his own. So I want to pull out three lessons this morning that we can see from how Paul ministers to the city. Um, and I think they're really good for us. And examples that we can employ as we kind of seek to engage with our city and our culture. So we're going to look at how Paul had cultural engagement. He engaged with the culture around him. We're going to look at how Paul used missional innovation he found new ways of sharing the gospel when the old ways didn't work and he had theological clarity. So let's just dive into the passage because otherwise it'll just be me talking nonsense and my voice will stop before we actually read the Bible. Um, firstly, cultural engagement. So the lesson I really want us to learn here is how you view the city instructs how you love the city. That's what we're going to see. How you view the city instructs how you love the city. Look at verses 16 and 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day to see uh, with those who happened to be there. Here we see Paul in Athens, all its glory and grandeur and culture. But look what he's doing. He sees that the city is full of idols, verse 16 says. <clears throat> he had a particular view of the city. He was able to look past the culture and the hype and all the enticements, all the things that were trying to shape how you think and feel and see the world. He was able to see through all of that. He was able to see it for what it was. Verse 23, when he's, later on when he's um, you know, speaking in the Areopagus, he says, as I passed along and observed... Paul's observing the culture. He's learning the culture. He's involved in the culture. He's getting to know it. He goes down in the marketplace and he talks with people. He's asking them, what do you believe about this and this and this? This is what I believe. And what did he see when he observed? 
Well, it's part of me, no, like it's, you can assume that Paul would have heard about Athens. You know, everyone in the Roman Empire would have heard about Athens, such was its grandeur. And maybe even he wondered if he might get to see it in person someday. I don't know. But here he is in this great city. And his worldview, his worldview that is based on the gospel of Jesus means that he isn't sucked in by all the attractions. He sees through the idolatry of it. I like the phrase that Luke uses here in verse 16. It says, he saw that the city was full of idols. Now that phrase kind of carries this meaning that, or this idea that it was smothered, uh, smothered in idolatry. Like the, the idolatry of the people was like choking the life out of the city, choking the life out of the people there. And Paul sees this. <coughs> Excuse me. And look what happened then. Look what happened in Paul's heart in verse 16. It says that his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit was provoked. He was in the culture. He was observing the culture. And because of the, 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 the kind of gospel lens that he interpreted the world through, his spirit was provoked. He was moved by what he saw. Now, what does this mean, his spirit was provoked? Well, you might be familiar in Exodus 32 um, of the, the story of how God frees his people from uh, Egypt and then he brings them into the desert and then Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God to, to, to receive the law of God and, and the instructions for how the people are to live under God. And when he comes back down, they've built a, 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 they've built a golden calf. When Moses is away for a couple of days, they say, Aaron, Moses' brother, Aaron, give us this, give us something that we can worship to praise for freeing us from Egypt. And then the anger, the spirit of God is provoked against them because of their idolatry. It's the same idea that we see in Matthew 12 <coughs> or John chapter 2 when Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem and he sees the kind of extortion and oppression and um, I can't think of the word, but really the money changers are doing dodgy things and keeping the people down. And, and he's, his spirit is provoked. He's angered. He's grieved by what he sees. And so he braids a whip and kicks over tables and drives them out. It's that same idea. Paul has a very emotional response to what he sees in the city. Paul has this reaction of a man who sees the world through the lens of Jesus. Through the, he sees the, the world the way God sees the world. And what he sees is he sees people who are made in the image of God. Who are made for this higher purpose of, of simply enjoying God. And what are they doing? They're wasting their lives with pointless idol worship. And, and he's grieved to his core. His anger is kindled. He can't just sit back and do nothing. And in many ways, you know, this is kind of like supposed to be a holiday for Paul. You know, he's got out of a dangerous situation. He comes to Athens and, and you know, if it were me, I'd be kicking, you know, going to coffee shops and museums and all that kind of stuff in Athens. And no, here he is. He sees it and he can't just sit back and do nothing. My challenge is this for us this morning. Do you observe the world around you? Do you observe culture? Do you see the city for what it is? Are, are you even looking? I, I, talk to, I talk to Christians all the time and when I hear, when I, sometimes someone will tell me like a particular point of view they have on something and I kind of wonder, how are you seeing the world around you? Are you interpreting culture through the lens of the gospel are you allowing culture to interpret you because what you've just said to me is just the opinion of the world and not the opinion of the bible but i'm not judging that person because i do it too and we all do it's so easy it's like two fish swimming in the sea call them frank and bob and frank and bob are off to work one morning that's fish too and and frank says to bob hey bob the water's really nice today and bob turns around and he says what's water and the point is that we can be immersed in these things and surrounded by these things and surrounded by these, these schools of thought and philosophies and ideas. And, and we might not have philosophers who are standing in markets anymore debating the meaning of life. But those, we have philosophies and zeitgeists and schools of thought that are all around us. And if we're not careful, we can be so immersed in them that we don't even see them and then they be, just become part of us. We need to observe our culture. We need to engage with culture and we need to know what's happening. 
So do you really see your surroundings? Um, it's, I've been chatting to Lucas, Lucas away on holidays, and uh, he's in Thailand, and he, was, he sent a little video through of, of people actually bowing down to, 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 to idols and um, statues. <coughs> now, that's kind of shocking, because you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that like, people still do this. But we do it all the time. It doesn't look like that, but idolatry is so present in our culture. Uh, Tony Morita, who's this uh, teacher and preacher, he says that idolatry is exchanging the glory of the creator to bow to created things. Idolatry is taking what is due uh, to the creator and giving that to created things. So when you think of idolatry in that way, we know that idolatry is all around us, don't we? We can see it. So look around yourself and ask, what are people worshiping? Um, it's my observation, and, and I, I, you know, I haven't had anybody ratify this or any like, you know, scholars, you know, but it's just my observation that there's kind of three main, three main big societal idols that we have, and and there's lots of little personal ones that, that come in under that, but they tend to fit into these three categories, in in my opinion, and they are success, security and progress. Think about it. We all want to be successful, don't we? We're driven, we're told that we need to be successful. And so maybe that's why you spend all your time at work when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. We all want to be secure. I want my, I want my baby to be secure. I want my family to be secure. I want to be secure. We as a country want to be secure. It's why, it's why there's so much uproar about borders and Brexit and Trump and Korea because we all, want to be, we all want to be secure. And maybe that's why you spend so much time every night lying in bed worrying about how much money is in the bank when God says, I will provide all you need. And we all want to be progressive, don't we? Society is always moving forward. We want the newest and latest thing. And ironically, that's what, uh, the, that's what this passage says about the Athenians 2,000 years ago. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is what we want. We think that always what comes next is better. And we all want to be progressive and we want to be seen as progressive. And maybe that's why your Twitter and Facebook comments are carefully crafted to make sure that you align yourself with the right side of whatever argument has happened in that five minutes. When actually... Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is how we need to see culture. And you might think I'm being melodramatic, but I'm not. This is what Paul is doing here. This is how we need to see culture. We need to see culture for what it is. My point is this. We need to see the city in the same way that God sees the city. This is what cultural engagement looks like. How do you see the city? Does it provoke your anger? Or is your spirit provoked within you? Do you? Are you grieved by what you see around you? Are you grieved when you're clo- you see your friends just <coughs> striving after you know, a secure relationship or a secure career? Are you grieved by that kind of thing? And the bottom line is this. Unless you see the city the way God sees the city, you will not love it the way God loves it. Do you get that? I'll say it again. Unless you see the city the way God sees the city, you will not love it the way God loves it. How are you gonna love the people around you the way God loves them if you don't see them the way God sees them? How you see the world instructs how you interact with the world. And without this gospel worldview, Listen, if, you're, if, you're, if, if, the only vo- if the voices you primarily listen to are yourself, are other people, and the media, and popular culture, then you're not going to have a gospel worldview. If the Bible and what God has to say is restricted to a five-minute slot every morning, or every week, or every month, or an hour on a Sunday morning, then you're not going to have a gospel worldview. To see the city the way, to to love the city the way God loves the city, we have to see the city the way God sees the city. So, if we engage with culture, 
and we interpret it through the lens of the gospel, we'll be moved to mission, right? We'll be moved to do something about it, just like Paul was. And this is where we come into our second point, which is missional innovation, right? And the lesson here is, it's not about making the gospel of Jesus relevant to our context. It's about showing our context that the gospel of Jesus is relevant. Thank you. Let's look again at Paul's example in verse 17. I promise we'll get past the first two verses. At this rate, we'll be here for like five hours. Actually, it's interesting because when, when Paul goes to speak at the Areopagus, um, the, it seems like his message is really short and he mentions like six kind of characteristics about God, right? But what scholars think is that based on records of what happened there, um, teachers and philosophers would, would kind of speak for like three or four hours. So I was thinking we could maybe model that this morning and we joking. My voice definitely wouldn't hold out. Um, so they think that actually what Luke has recorded here is the kind of the main points of, of Paul's sermon. Um, but we'll get back to that later. But I just thought it was really interesting. Verse 17. Um, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So there's a really important two-letter word at the start of that verse 16, and it's the word so. Anytime you're reading the Bible and you see the word so, stop and look at what came before it and look what comes after it because that little word connects in a very particular way, always. What is going on here is he's saying that, Luke is saying that Paul saw the city, his spirit was provoked, so, and because of that, this is why he went and reasoned in the synagogue and the marketplace. He was moved into action. And seeing the world the way God sees the world will propel us into mission. That's just what happens. As your affections grow more and more for Jesus, so your affections grow more and more to tell other people about Jesus. <coughs> I might need to, you know, pop that sweet back in again, which just adds another level to my disgustingness, but it might have to happen. When God saw us in our desperation and depravity, he moved towards us out of love. And he sacrificed himself to save us from that depravity. And if you're a Christian today, you should see the world the way God sees the world and be moved to help bring people out of that depravity too by pointing them to Jesus. But we need to examine not just Paul being on mission because we've done that a lot over the past few weeks in Acts, but we need to see here how Paul went about his mission. This, my throat's really sore. Um, over the previous weeks, we saw that Paul had this kind of this um, strategy. He would go to a city. Um, then on the Sabbath, he would go down to the synagogue when all the Jews were going to be there. The synagogue is just a place where Jews go to pray. That's the simple version, in case you're wondering what that word means. And he would go down there, and he, would, uh, he knew that the Jews kind of had this, this, this similar similar worldview to him and that was based in the scriptures and so he would read the scriptures to them and then he would show them that all the scriptures pointed to Jesus and he does that here in Athens too but he also has to take on a new approach he has to employ some missional innovation um, Athens requires a new a new place for him to go and a new approach okay in verse 17, he goes to the marketplace. Now, when it says that he goes to the marketplace, it's not just like he nipped down to Tesco's and started preaching, you know, at the cheese counter or something. The marketplace was more than that in Athens. In ancient Greece, the marketplace was, it would have had traders, yes. It would have had food, food being sold and cloth being sold and clothes and, and all that kind of stuff. It would have had money being changed and all kinds of things. <coughs> but it was also, it would have had like, um, it would have had uh, public debate it would have had officials of the city del deliberating over different cases. It would have had artists creating works of art. It would have had philosophers doing whatever the heck philosophers do. I don't know. But it was, the point is, it was, this, it, was this, I, it was a place where people came together to exchange ideas and culture. It was a, it was a kind of a crucible. It was a, it was a, a, melting, a melting pot of, of, of culture. And this is where Paul goes. 
His motivation was so strong that he couldn't wait to the Sabbath to go to the synagogue. He, it, the verse tells us that every day he was in the marketplace. So the, the, these Greek philosophers and the Greek people in the marketplace, they weren't familiar with this Jewish worldview. They weren't familiar with the scriptures. For to, so for Paul to go there and say, hey, all these scriptures, these Jewish scriptures are actually about Jesus and you need to believe in him to be saved, they would just be like, what? That doesn't make any sense. So he had to come up with a new approach. So eventually after a few days of him, uh, you know, speaking with these guys in the marketplace, they realize, hey, this guy's got something to say. They call him a babbler, um, which actually has this idea of like, <coughs> he's a seed picker. They think that he's kind of like a bird picking up seeds. He picks up different little bits and tries to spit it out as like some kind of philosophy. They also think that he was, when it says foreign divinities, big, big cup of water. Uh, we warm water. Any lemon in it, pal? A little bit of honey? Hot whiskey? Um, so they take him to the Areopagus, right? They loved hearing new ideas and they think there's something about this. They, you're talking about these foreign divinities. They couldn't understand it. They thought they were talking about Jesus and then they thought that oftentimes in, in that Greek culture, you know, gods were called by their characteristics. So when he talks about Jesus and the resurrection, they kind of think that he's talking about Jesus and maybe Jesus' female counterpart called resurrection because, so they can't really understand it. So they say, you need to come to the Areopagus and tell us all what you mean. Now the Areopagus was, um, was a hill and there was a court that met on the hill. And on this hill in Athens, there was another temple built to Ares, the god of war, which is the, the, the Roman equivalent is the, the god called Mars, which is where we get the name Mars Hill from. So he goes to Mars Hill and they invite him to speak. And it's here that we see Paul taking on this new approach. Look at verses 22 and 23. He says, it says, so Paul, oh, that's good, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So what is Paul doing here? We're not looking at the content right now. We're looking at his method. What's Paul doing here? He's finding a point of contact in their religion and in their culture. And then from that point of contact, he goes on to introduce the truth of the gospel. He says, you have this, thing, this God called the unknown God. Well, let me tell you about the unknown God. The unknown God is the creator and sustainer of life. The unknown God is the father of humanity. The unknown God is also judge and rescuer. And I think this is a really good example for us as we share the gospel. Listen, e even in Northern Ireland where, where you know, like most people have some kind of Christian influence in their life, the idea that you're a sinner and need to be saved doesn't make any sense. Because we live in this secular world where the underlying current is everyone's basically good, right? Everyone's basically good. We're all moving forward to some kind of, you know, progressive, goodish goal. <coughs> so why would I need saved? I'm a moral person. I have my morals, right? So what Paul does here is he, he introduces this new worldview for them. He's saying, you need to think about the world differently. Actually, the world was created by God. And he sustains life. And actually, he doesn't need human help. He doesn't need served by human hands. He's the one who sustains you, not the other way around. And, the, and for the Greeks, this was completely controversial because their gods needed served. And I think the lesson here is amazing. We find a point of contact in culture and then we use this as a point of contrast to bring in the truth of the gospel. Let me give you an example. This is kind of like a wee bit of a training thing right now. Um, take the, the Me Too campaign, all the sexual harassment stuff coming like, by the way, before I get into that, I, I want to say that it's, I think it's great that this is all coming into the light. This is amazing. And, and, and I'm, I have a glimmer of hope that it might change some things in the, the way the world works. I'm not holding my breath, but maybe, maybe. I think it's great that it's come to light. But, but think about that. You will have opportunity to talk about sexual abuse, sexual harassment. You will have chance to talk about Me Too campaign. You will have the chance to talk about, um, uh, you know, no more and all that kind of stuff. That will come up with your friends, with your colleagues, 
classmates, whatever. <clears throat> and we can say, as Christians, we can say, I agree with you. I absolutely, fundamentally, 100% agree with you that women should not be subjected to this kind of domination and abuse and fear. I agree with you. That's the point of contact. Now, the point of contrast then comes where you can bring in the truth of the gospel is that the reasons why we believe that may be different from the world because we believe, the reason we believe that women should not be, or anyone, male or female, should not be subjected to abuse is that because women are made in the image of God and, and that is something to be honored and revered and, and, and that is something to be, to be held gently and lovingly and respectfully. You see how it works? You find a point of contact and you say, this is what Paul did. You say, that thing that you're talking about, I agree with that point of view. And let me tell you why. So you see how that works? Maybe that's helpful. That's one. And you guys are gonna have to work out how to do this, you know, in every situation and everything comes up. You find a point of contact and then you find a point of contrast. Paul's mission took on a new approach because his context required it. And we need to follow Paul's example too. We need to figure out what is the best way to present the gospel in our context, okay? Um, I think that the church should be engaged with culture to the point where we know instinctively what will and won't work, okay? And it means that... <coughs> We don't just do the same old things over and over and over again because we've always done them, right? But it also means that we don't just try new things because they're new and exciting or hipster or whatever. Insert adjective there. Innovation is about finding a new way of doing something because the old way doesn't work or the old way isn't effective anymore. See, example, in, 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 it used to be effective to stand in street corners on a box and preach the gospel and people would gather around and listen to you and then respond. That's not effective anymore. People don't get their information any, that way anymore. People don't engage with the information that way anymore. You have to be, a, as a Christian, you have the responsibility of engaging with culture to figure out what works best for your context. And our missional communities and village are a great way of working this stuff out. Now, last week, John went into some of the, the innovation that the, the missional communities have uh, and the ways that we do mission, whether it be throwing parties or whether it be, you know, um, a, a, a mum's group or what, whatever it is. I'm not going to go into that now. Um, but what I will say is I'm going to be sending out some discussion questions and points for your MCs this week. So this is kind of going to be your homework. I want us to spend some time this week as missional communities uh, as communities, and I know we do this a lot, but you can never do it enough. Recognize the idolatry of, your, your, of our culture. Recognizing the points of contact. Recognizing the points of contrast. And then figuring out new ways that we can share the gospel. But before we move on to my last point, there's one final uh, thing I want to get, to get across. And this is maybe the most important thing of, of missional innovation. Missional innovation is not about making the gospel relevant to your context it's about showing your context that the gospel is relevant. And I can't emphasize that enough. The good news of Jesus has never changed and will never change. Amen. The God we worship is always the same. Second Corinthians tells us that his promises are yes and amen. It's a done deal with God. The message the world has always needed to hear, still needs to hear, and always will need to hear until Jesus returns, is this, that we're a broken people, we live in a broken world, but God out of his infinite and unending love has intervened through his son, Jesus, and sacrificed him to renew his broken world, to restore his broken people. And you know what? He's gonna, Jesus is gonna to reign over his renewed and restored people and creation forever. That's the message the world needs to hear. Now, how we how we deliver that message is up for discussion. But that message can never change. And we're gonna get, that, that, that kind of leads us onto our next point, our final point. Um, theological clarity. So we saw that Paul had cultural engagement. He was engaged with the culture. He learned the culture. He, 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 he invested time speaking to people in that culture. We saw that he had missional innovation. 
he found a new approach of delivering the message of the gospel, the same gospel, but he found a new way of doing that through points of contact and points of contrast with the culture. But why was it that Paul was able to have this gospel-centric engagement with the culture? And why was it that he, when he saw the culture and engaged with the culture, he was kind of moved to do something about it? Well, the main lesson to learn here is that theological clarity is the reason and the motivation for cultural engagement and for missional innovation. Let me explain. If you're wondering what I mean by theological clarity, let me, let me just break it down. Theology is really just means what we, what we believe about who God is and how he interacts with the world, okay? So when you hear someone say theology, I'm studying theology, be it any kind of branch of theology, what they're actually saying is I'm studying a particular aspect of who God is and how he interacts with the world. So when Paul has theological clarity, <coughs> excuse me, He's really clear on who God is and how he interacts with the world. And we see that in the message that he brings in, in, on Mars Hill, don't we? He does a beautiful job of going back, right back to the beginning and said, God is the creator. God is the sustainer of life. God is the father of human beings. God is the judge and rescuer. Paul just simply gives them a clear message about who God is and how he interacts with his people. The method isn't really the point. The message is the point. So I don't, I don't care how you share the gospel with your friends and colleagues and so on. I do care about the message that you're sharing with them. And it should be the same for all of us because it's an unchanging message. And this is why theological clarity is so important. This is why we, we teach straight from the Bible every Sunday morning. This is why we have missional communities to discuss these things even further. This is why um, this is why I'm studying a master's in theology because I want to be able to teach you as best as I possibly can. And this is why we do things like Village Academy so that you know what you believe and why you believe it and, and how best to, to share that with other people. Without theological clarity, without a firm grasp of, of the gospel, we have nothing to offer people. Right? Without Jesus, we have nothing to offer people. All we have is Jesus and without theological clarity, we won't even feel inclined to share it with them anyway. You see, a clear, a clear view, easy for me to say, of what we believe is our motivation for mission, and it's also our message of mission. So while we need to be engaged with culture and we need to find the best ways to be on mission, the gospel has to be at the foundation. We have nothing to offer people except Jesus. That's all we have. Imagine if Paul had gone down to Athens, right? And he didn't have theological clarity. Imagine he, he wasn't sure what, who God is or what Jesus did. He's like, oh, yeah, I love Jesus, but I'm not really sure how that, you know. Imagine if he has gone down there and he finds himself in this culture which is all about pulling you in and all about converting you to their way of thinking and all about, uh, you know, the, 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 the pleasures of life. What would have happened? He could easily have been swayed to their way of thinking. And this is a really important point. Cultural engagement without theological clarity is just relevance over truth, right? Cultural, sorry, cultural engagement without theological clarity is just relevance over truth. And we see this all the time. We, you know, I, I have friends and, and you're like, what? what yeah, you love Jesus, but what have you got to offer people? Because it seems like all your ideas and all your theologies are just influenced by what everyone else wants you to say anyway. And he, he could have, Paul could have engaged with the culture really well, and he could have come up with a really brilliant and genius way of sharing the gospel with those people. But if he didn't have theological clarity then he would have nothing to subs of substance to say because theological sorry, missional innovation without theological clarity is just style over substance. Man, I hate hype. I hate it. I, 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 yeah, anyway, we'll talk about that later. I, I hate it whenever you see like these kind of pseudo-Christian things and they're all about like good design and a nice catchy title like, I don't know, fire or, you know, there's always like something about flying or, I don't know, What's all about? 
And you're like, well, what are you actually teaching people? I hate hype. Missional innovation without theological clarity is just style over substance. Do we want to be a church of style over substance? No is the answer to that question, in case you're wondering. You know, of course we want to have like a nice environment to meet in and we, you know, and I love like, you know, Alice is doing with the, the flowers and the decorations and I'm so thankful for people like Tim who make Everything Village do look kind of good and, not kind of good, sorry Tim, but like really good, <laughs> really good, you know. But ultimately those things don't matter. If we had to meet in a, an empty barn, the message wouldn't change. It wouldn't change who we, who we are. Uh, Steve Timmis, who's, um, he, he kind of leads uh, the network we're part of called Acts 29, and he says this, our theological clarity not only gives us permission to engage with culture, it actually requires us to do so, but even more than that, it is itself an act of cultural engagement. Shall I read that again? Our, our theological clarity not only gives us permission to engage with culture, it actually requires us to do so, but even more than that, it is it, it, it is itself an act of cultural engagement. In other words, the more confident we become in what we believe, the more compelled we will be to share it with other people. Does that make sense? Theological clarity is the reason for and the motivation for engaging with culture and for, for sharing the gospel in new ways. It's, it's the basis on which the other two stand. So we're done. I just want to ask one question as we kind of come to a close. What's this all about? Um, uh, really, really good friend of mine, I'm not going to say who it is because I don't want to embarrass him, but when I talk to him, we talk about these things sometimes, he just says, and I've seen, I've, you know, I've, I've been with him and he's standing there and he said to me with a tear in his eye, and he says, I just want people to meet Jesus. And he leads a missional community in our church. That's exactly the kind of people we want leading our missional communities. That's exactly the kind of people we want to be. It's all about introducing people to Jesus. Paul has spent days reasoning with these people every day. And then he gets an, an opportunity to go to this, this kind of high, high court thing and, and, and explain the whole story of God. But he, he, he ends with an invitation, right? He leaves the ball in their court because the gospel requires a response. Look at verses 30 and 31. Listen to what Paul says. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that's Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He gives them an opportunity to respond to his message. He's saying, all of this only makes sense because of Jesus. This worldview that I'm giving you only makes sense in Jesus. All that I've just talked about for the last three or four hours is about Jesus. All I've been talking about for days and days and days in the marketplace and in the synagogue is all about Jesus. He's saying there's coming a day when Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. <coughs> He's saying that, you know this unknown God that you worship? Well, God in his mercy and his patience and his kindness and his desire that all people would, would see the fullness of life. That day, he's kind of overlooked this, but that's coming to an end. He calls them to leave their ignorance behind. It can't last forever. He calls them to repent and recognize that the unknown God is not unknown, that he has revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ. It says earlier in the passage that he was preaching Jesus because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, verse 18. Paul finishes his message with an invitation to respond. And this is what we need to do in our context. And this is the scariest part, isn't it? This is the scariest part. Nobody wants to say, hey, by the way, the world's going to end someday and you're going to die someday, so what are you going to do about Jesus? Nobody wants to say that. That's the hardest part, and I know it's the hardest part because I find it the hardest part too, and it's okay to admit that to each other. It's okay to say, hey, I find it really hard. 
I'm good at telling people about Jesus. I'm good at serving them. I'm good at giving their kids lifts to places. I'm good at helping them paint their house. I'm good at doing the groceries for them. I'm good at being a shoulder to cry on. And I'm good at even introducing Jesus into the conversation. And I'm okay with saying, you know, God loves you. And God is there for you. And Jesus died for you. But I don't know how to say to people, what are you going to do about this? And ultimately, that's what it comes down to. We need to get people to a place where we say, what are you going to do about this? And it might not be the first conversation you ever have with them. But what about that person that you've been interacting with for years and years? That dear friend of yours that you love so much and that you actually pray would come to know Jesus. When was the last time that you said to them, hey, you know this Christianity thing that I'm always talking about or that you know is a big part of my life? What are you going to do about that? Because Jesus demands a response. And Paul makes it clear here, listen, I, I'm really aware that I'm sounding a bit like old school fire and brimstone here, but it's in the Bible and we can't skip over it. It's true and it's good. Paul says that there's a day that is coming. The time has already been, the time has already been set by God that everyone will be faced up to the fact that Jesus is Lord. So I love you, my friend, and I would do anything for you. And because of that, I can't not tell you this. You need to do something about Jesus. You need to respond to him. Does it make you feel uncomfortable? It should. It should. My, my prayer is that when we leave this place this morning that we'll all be a little bit more motivated to go and, and just share the good news of Jesus. Um, my sister uh, passed away a few months, a few months ago, with uh, as a result of long, well, short-term cancer, and um, uh, it just, as I spoke to her, especially in the final days, uh, you know, and like it was funny. It was almost like her, it was almost like her, her Christianity just became extra real to her. You know, it, it became more urgent to her, and something happened during those few days that it, that transferred to me where because of, because of, because I saw what happens to people, because I've seen up close and personal results of sin and death, that people need to know about Jesus and people need to know that this life isn't forever. People, your friends, if you really love them, why are you not telling them this? Why am I not telling my friends this? At every opportunity, in love and respect, but tell them urgently. And listen, if you're, if you're not, I'm really, I'm really, really finished now. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to extend that invitation to you. The invitation's open. That actually, the world isn't going to last forever. Your life isn't going to last forever. But Jesus is there. It's, he's, it's the only worldview that makes sense that you are broken and you know you're broken because look at, look at how you respond to the broken world around you. You must have felt it. You must recognize it. And Jesus is the only one that can, can fix that for you. So how are you gonna respond? Are you gonna say, Jesus, you are Lord. I see it now. Jesus, you are actually king. Jesus, you are the only answer. Jesus, you did die for me. And so... Jesus, I do submit. I do submit to you. Do it this morning. I, I really appeal to you. Do it this morning. And maybe you are a Christian. And, and maybe you are a Christian. You haven't said that to, to, to Jesus in a while. Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are my King. Jesus, you died for me. Do it this morning. Tell him again. Allow him to fix your worldview. Allow him to, to instruct how you see your friends and family and neighbors and the news and art and music and culture. Jesus died for me so that I could live. We're gonna, we're gonna take, um, I'm, I'm gonna call it the Lord's Supper this morning because I'm feeling old school and fiery and brimstoney. Um, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper, right? So if you've never experienced this before, you might have known something about communion in churches. It's, it's a piece of bread and it's some wine 
And, and, and the bread, we break pieces of bread off and we dip it into wine and we have bread and wine because the, 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 the bread represents that Jesus' body was, was broken and bruised and destroyed for us. And, and we take the wine because it represents his blood. His blood, his physical blood was shed as an act of, as an act of sealing the covenant that, that we are now in Jesus. And so we take this meal together to remember that. And before I kind of get into anything else, I want to say that um, how we do that here is there'll be, there'll be uh, someone over on this side and someone over this side with bread and wine. And just join the queue and come up to the front and break off a piece of bread and dip it in the wine and take that. And, 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 and do it with your friends and do it with your family and do it with your missional communities. But I do want to say this. Man, I knew it was going to go long. Um, <laughs> uh, we don't just take communion as some kind of way to end our time together. We don't just tack it on as a nice way to end the service. The bread and wine represents the ultimate cultural engagement. Word became flesh. Word became flesh that was destroyed to save flesh. The bread and the wine are the ultimate missional innovation. That God pursued us to the point of death, to the point of self-sacrifice. And the bread and the wine are the ultimate theological clarity. This is the only truth that we have to offer people. So as you come forward, if you're a Christian, come forward and receive this meal this morning. If you're not a Christian, refrain from it. But like I said, receive Jesus instead. I'm going to be around the front here. And I'd love to talk to you more about that or pray with you about any of these things. Um, As you do come to the table, consider what it cost God to be on mission to us. His body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you and allow that to propel you out into mission. We don't take communion so that we can feel good about our own salvation. We do that's part of it, yes, and it's a celebration, but we do it so it propels us back into our culture so that we can engage with them and share this amazing news with them. The band's gonna come back up and they're gonna lead us in, in, in some musical worship while we, while we take this meal together. Um, and while they come up, I'm just gonna pray, pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are not a God who is removed from your creation. You're a God who not just, you didn't just create the world and leave us to our own devices. You're, in, you're invested in us. You sustain our lives. You sustain all life. Father, I pray for <coughs> a renewed worldview in all of us this morning. I pray that we would see the world around us through your eyes. I pray that we would see friends and family uh, members and neighbors and colleagues. See them the way that you see them, as, as people who need you, as people who are broken, as people who you love, as people who you died for. And Lord, would that, would that just motivate us so much to the point where we can't sit back and do nothing, where we have to serve them and we have to tell them about you. Father, I, I pray for anyone in this room who's, who has never submitted their life to you. Lord, I pray that you would, you would touch them this morning and you would, you would just speak to them in a real, a real uh, way that they would recognize as you. Lord, I pray that you would just um, finally allow people just to submit to you this morning. And Lord, I pray for the hard Christian hearts in the room. Lord, I ask that you would soften our hearts like John prayed earlier, that you would soften our hearts and that we would all be able to say once again that you are Lord Jesus. You are King Jesus. You died for me, Jesus. And I submit my life to you. Lord, may we be moved this morning to love you and to love the world around us. In Jesus' name, and it's all for your glory. Amen.